Welcome back, everyone, to Out of the Bane. Welcome back, John, to Out of the Bane. Hello. So good to be here. Yes. Um, I hope you'll indulge me because before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to go to the viewer mailbox. Is that cool? Wow, already. Well, this is I've had this in the queue for a while. This is a, a guy, a listener, we'll call him Listener Martin. He comes to us from Hamburg. Now, now I'm hungry. Well, I, th- I think that's where the Hamburglar is from. Um, <laughs> that's, that's how he got his name. Um, okay. Good, so Martin good. Carbo, and he's been writing to me off and on for several weeks, maybe even months. Mm-hmm. And he always mm-hmm. follows up our episodes with these really interesting factoids, some of which he's already prepared for like a blog and some of which he just tracks down on the fly. Okay. And what he likes to do is he likes to take either – well, specifically some of the vignettes and stories that we bring up either ourselves or with guests on the show. And he tracks down all these different like takes on what happened from different sources and different interviews and combines it all yes, and shoots it all yes. to me. So I wanted to read, there are a couple things that came out of our Gaucho interview that I think you're going to find interesting. Um, and if we have time, well, of course we have time. Um, he's got some stuff on the Christopher Cross record. Okay. And then an interesting thing on Spain, the song Spain. Ooh, so, all right. Um, so let me dive into the Gaucho stuff first, since we just did Gaucho the previous two episodes. Um, then we had Tris and Bowden on for two, right? But um, so prior to that, so it was um, Steve Kahn. Remember, we talked mm-hmm. about Steve Kahn. Yep. So in Rob Mouncey, I should have done more homework. Who's Rob Mouncey? Was he, he obviously involved in the project? It's a name I see. I don't know that much about him. I so, can't say. Okay, so they're recording the rhythm track for Gaucho, doing who knows how many takes and being somewhat exasperated and finally realizing that it was the last take of the night that would be salvaged. Remember we talked about that story? Yes. Yep. And so there was almost a bewilderment of, and this is for, I think, Steve Kahn's take. There was almost a bewilderment of what the producers were looking for. Could not tell the difference between the takes anymore. They were just getting, no, we're not quite there. There's still a thing. Yeah. And so here's Donald Fagan's perspective that he said, that was interesting. What actually happened was we did eight, ten takes, and it was a difficult song, you know, a lot of accents. The chorus was kind of a different style than the rest of the song. And Walter said, you know what? It's getting late. And Walter and I left. But the producer, Gary Cass, decided he wanted to try it to do himself a couple more takes. And Fagan says, I had no idea what happened after we left. I heard they did a bunch of takes and uh, we ended up doing a last take and some few pieces from other stuff and it all came out good. And he says, I had to say I was pretty ambivalent actually to record that song because I felt it drew too heavily from a Keith Jarrett composition that I had heard. Ah, yes. Yeah. Yes. He said, I hadn't heard that Keith Jarrett tune for a long time, but I knew it was kind of in my head when I was writing this song, Gaucho, that is. You know, it was almost like a parody of Keith Jarrett in a certain way. And I sort of thought, well, it's probably just as well if we don't get a take because I don't want to be like a repeater pencil, as Lester Young used to say. But we did get a good take after we left, and everyone said, that's great. Let's just finish it. And so we did. And then then Keith Jarrett sued us when it came out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So there's a little bit on that one. And then one other take from Gaucho that I – go ahead. I got to say something about Steve Kahn real quick because this was gnawing at me from before. Um, he's done so many great things, but I got to tell people, go check out, believe it or not, Maynard Ferguson from the uh, an album called um, New Vintage. It's like late 70s. Mm. It was uh, produced by Bob Clearmountain. But they do a version of the Star Wars theme, which this I know again? instantly <laughs> makes you laugh. I know. 
but it's excellent. And the solo that Steve Kahn rips on that is worth the price of admission. So go check that out. Okay, cool. Now you may continue. I made a note of that. All right, cool. This was another perspective, too. This is Elliot Shiner. So Elliot Shiner worked on the record as well. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, I was fortunate to have these guys record the music the way they did. So it made me look like a genius, but I wasn't. You know, I just did the mix. So he was the mixer, right? Yeah. So when we did the track Groucho, or <laughs> why do I keep calling it Groucho? <laughs> I should have done that the first time. When we did the track yeah. Groucho, the original band was Jeff Beccaro, Chuck Rainey, Victor Feldman, Don Grolnick, Steve Kahn, and somebody else he couldn't remember. And Fager and Becker are listening to this, and they're going, nah, this kind of, not gonna, this isn't going to make it. And Gary Katz, I, I think this band's good. And Becker and Fagan are like, well, you're welcome to it, but we're leaving. So <laughs> that, that's how Gary Katz remembers it. And so they left, and we still recorded, but only for a drum track. And Picaro knew that. Everybody was sitting there playing for him. And at about 2 in the morning, we figured we had enough pieces, this is Gary Katz still, to actually cut it together, and that's what we did. And normally, he said, Becker and Fagan would come in and go, ah, this is crap. But they actually came in the next day and said, this is pretty good. So then we worked with Jeff's drum track and got everybody else. So now, according to Shiner, Babylon Sisters, Time Out of Mind, and Third World Man were all real drums. That's what he says. And Hmm. He-19, Glamour Profession, My Rival were all Wendell, except for the Phil's. So well, I'm not going to argue with uh, the great Elliot Shiner, but it doesn't sound like that yeah. to me. Well, he, he uh, this is actually an interview that Elliot Shiner did with uh, Tyler Burns for uh, engineering. Uh, what was it? it? Just an interview about engineering uh, Steel Dan's Gaucho. So, hmm. so that okay. was interesting. So, yeah, let me give you another one because ever since we did our Christopher Cross record. Um, Tommy Taylor has been writing to us, is correcting yes. some of the things. And we're hoping to get Tommy on the show. But um, this Martin grabbed a bunch of sources on some of the stuff relative to the Tommy Taylor record. I think you're going to love this. So um, this is about the drums to sailing. Okay, mm-hmm. and this is Tommy mm-hmm. in his own words in various messages to Martin and other places that Martin's tracked down. So. He said, Jeff Beccaro tracked sailing with the band, but his track was not used. Well, truly, this is Tommy Taylor saying this, I wouldn't have arrived at my particular part had I not heard what Jeff did. My part was a blend of my old part that was really Rob Moore's part and Jeff's. We'd cut it already, and Chris wasn't happy, I guess. He said, maybe Michael wasn't either, Michael O'Marion. And I was having a hard time keeping the slow tempo steady on it. And the part that had been mostly what Rob, is it Moore? Do you know how to say his name? I don't. Okay. Uh, Had showed before. So we'll just call him Rob. Rob was also a drummer. um, And so he's like, I don't know how I got the gig because Rob was their drummer. But uh, they didn't think it was assertive enough. So after the initial passes uh, were deemed not it, Jeff Picara was brought in. And he says, I don't remember the ins and outs. I think it was discussed without my knowledge. And then obviously I was brought back into the conversation and it was tough, you know, to say, sorry, we're not using you. We're using Picaro. Jeff came and played and he said, Jeff was wonderful. He was extremely kind and reassuring. And he had been in a similar situation on both sides of that coin and in a very subtle way, went out of his way to take any fear or intimidation or undermining of my confidence completely out of the picture. And Tommy Taylor says, I idolized him for a long time. This was real piss shivers moments for me but i say hey you're like the older brother just well, what can i say so just part was really heavy-handed he said but he did those flams and he said i hadn't been doing that and what what he played was just too slamming overall for the song but the flam aspect raised my internal eyebrow 
So watching him play, he was able to take from what he had done and combine that approach with what Rob had shown him and they had morphed that into what ended up being the recording. And he said, once I saw Jeff do it, I knew we needed, it was just a ma- I knew what we needed. It was just a matter of getting it out of me and a chance to revisit it. And he played it to the Lynn. Did you say, mm-hmm. did you mention that in the last episode? No. Yeah. No, I didn't. I know that was very common by those, that group of producers, you know, the, the whole Foster and Graydon and, you know, Michael Marty and uh, that whole culture. They always started with the Lindrum first. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. And then, um, so Chris, you know, who Chris had originally said that the drums just weren't getting it. He came out and he said, that's it. You, you, yep. you did it. So um, then they found out that Warner wasn't going to release it as a single. <laughs> they were so pissed. <laughs> All that. Effort. Yeah. And so they, well, they, they ended up getting the last laugh. Yeah. Because they released it as the second single. But right. last thing right. for Tomics, I thought this was interesting and you'll like it. So, okay. He's talking about now Minstrel Gigolo, which is the song that we talked about. We thought Simon... Well, Eric Johnson was on Eric that, Johnson. Too. And you right. asked, remember? And so mm-hmm. this Martin yep. tracked it down. He said, why was Eric Johnson on it? Did they Tommy and him meet? Because you said Tommy toured with Eric Johnson later. Is that right? Right. And played on his records, yep. yeah. So, okay. So he says, Tommy Taylor says, Minstrel Gigolo had never been heard by any of us. And it was an after-dinner jam. It's it only the second pass. And the only reason it was the second pass was because we weren't rolling tape on the first pass. Mm-hmm. So that came, and so the guitar solo debuted Eric Johnson, and the saxophone solo by Tomas Ramirez were produced by Tommy Taylor and Chet Himes in Austin, Texas, later in the summer. Oh, okay, good for Tommy. Yeah, yeah. So, so Chris was in the other room on the phone, and Chet Himes and I made those solos happen that way. So Chris was there, mm-hmm. but he wasn't like overseeing it. And he said he's known Eric Johnson since he was 13. They grew up in the same city and were kind of contemporary child prodigies. Albeit, he says, I would say he was much more of an advanced guitarist at 15 than I was a drummer at 13. So, Yeah, but, you know, sometimes you catch up, yep. right? Yep. Okay, last piece of viewer mail. This is also... Lightning from- round? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Martin's getting his own lightning round. But these are really cool stories, I thought. He gets some... So here's just last one. Remember we talked when we were talking to Teresa and Bowden about um, he playing Spain with El Giro in Madrid? Right. Yeah. So, um, so do you know who Larry Lifesaver Williams is? He isn't he ultimately the Rhodes player that plays the bit. Yes, he's the one that replaced Chick Corea. Exactly. So this is how this went. Um, so Jay Graydon, this is him talking now. Jay Graydon interviewed from Inside Music Cast, which is a cool, really cool show. Yes. Um, he says Chick Corea and Stanley Car. Clark played on the track, and I erased them on purpose. <laughs> I love the way he talks. I erased them on purpose. Chick's <laughs> piano uh, setup was a stage Fender Rhodes, not the suitcase type. And the stage Fender Rhodes doesn't have a preamp built in, so the tone is really dark. And he had been running through some delay lines, so whenever he hit a note, it sounded really arpeggio. He says it was just terrible. I said, man, we got to lose all this stuff. And he gave me an attitude. <laughs> we finally got that straight. <laughs> So we were playing the tune, and Stanley's out of tune. I said, Stanley, man, tune up. He said, I just did. He says, he was effing with me. And, man, I didn't dig it at all. So I had some specific ideas in mind, and they weren't cooperating. So I went up to Steve Gadd and said, Steve, I'll be listening to you in the control room. I'm wiping these guys the second I get a good drum track. (laughs) And so he brought Larry Williams in that night into a little studio, worked with Larry to death to get a great Rhodes part, and then brought Abe Laboreal in the next day to lay down the bass. And he said, I'm telling you, it was smoking. So. Yes, yes. But in the liner notes, El Giro in the thanks and acknowledgements, thanks Chick Corea and Stanley Clark. You guys really helped us make the classic Spain a classic again. 
<laughs> so I, I wonder if you didn't even know. It makes me That's wonder, how. Yeah. yeah. So I thought uh, all of that was great stuff. So he's piecing that together from various sources. And if anyone wants to know what the sources are, I can send them out. But some of those are direct messages with these people and some are interviews that he tracks down. So yep. good stuff, Hamburglar Martin. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let's, uh, let's move on to today's topic, which is hot takes. Hot takes. Yes. We are... Coming out of the deep end, because we've been doing very deep dive episodes, technical stuff, lucky enough to interview some of these legends, but this is a little more in the shallower end of the harbor. Yeah, I saw a, I uh, want to credit Rick Beato for this basic idea. I watched a video of his on YouTube where he had a couple of his buddies on, and they just simply debated what would be provocative questions, you know, stuff that people talk about all the time. You know, what's the more important album, uh, Dark Side of the Moon or Sgt. Pepper's? Or who's the, who is the better guitar player, Jimi Hendrix or Eric Clapton? And it just, you know, you, you set these out there and then you, you just see where the conversation goes. And I found it intriguing. I thought we ought to give it a run. Yeah, it, it was funny because you sent that to me. And the very first thing that asked, <laughs> the way he says it was, Rick says, who's more famous? Yeah, Jimi Hendrix. That was weird. Yeah, Jimi Hendrix or Eric Clapton, and I'm thinking yeah, more famous, that was more odd. famous. But so the question seems, I don't know, kind of silly at first. But then the more they talked about it and debated it, that was what made it really interesting to me. Yeah, because all three of those guys really know the bit. So. Exactly, exactly. So we decided we would take our uh, a version of what they did, and you and I are going to share hot takes, hot takes with each other. Yeah, it's kind of like a death not an option sort of thing, right? But not quite. Right. And then we're going to debate it to death and then uh, hopefully uh, arrive at some conclusions here. So who's going first in uh, this first episode of Hot Takes? Well, I'll I'll hit you with one because I think this is uh, a big one. And I will frame it in the uh, form of a hot, hot take. Some people might say that... The more significant producer, not including just Yacht Rock, but just in general, the more significant producer is David Foster over Quincy Jones. Ooh. So is that your hot take that we are debating? Ooh. That is not my hot take. That is some people might say. Oh, well, I really I don't want to give my answer away. Yeah. Um, wow. So, geez, I don't even know where to start on that one. That's huge. I know. What's interesting in, you'll maybe have more knowledge of this, but what's interesting to me about um, David Foster is to watch his evolution from the very early days. I think like one of his first, what were some of his very early, early records? Um, well, I know his first full album production was that uh, J.P. Morgan album. That's so what I thought. So he probably done right. some, some one-off songs before that, but that was his first, here's do an album kind of thing. And it's, it's amazing. Was, yeah, and she was, I mean, an unknown music artist, probably at least unproven, but she was sort of had some celebrity around being on the gong show and some other things. But that is a very R&B type album. Mm-hmm. And then he eventually kind of starts working with Earth, Wind, and Fire, which is still in the R&B. And then he's like full-on yacht, what we consider yacht today. Yep. And then we also say he makes this evolution into evil David Foster, where right. he's overproducing the corporate. I mean, I say overproducing. Who am I to judge what right. he's doing? But um, very slick and very big bombastic productions anyway with the likes of Chicago and some others, Richard Marks and stuff. And, you know, he's still making music to this day. Yes, you I know? know. So... Well, let me give you a. I, I put together some notes on this one, just a, a quick tale of the tape. And um, so, you know, 
with Foster, obviously your mind instantly goes to Chicago, the 80s era Chicago. And you know songs like Hard to Say I'm Sorry, Love Me Tomorrow, Hard Habit to Break, uh, Stay the Night, You're the Inspiration, Will You Still Love Me, If She Would Have Been Faithful. I mean, the hits just go on and on and on. To a certain degree, they sound a lot the same, which oh. may be a mark against them, right? Well, I was going to say the snare hits definitely go on <laughs> yeah. and on. And actually, those are some pretty harsh snares. Continue. You know, we got Kenny Loggins with the Vox Humana album, you know, producing Forever, which Tris talked about. Mm-hmm. You know, he's produced Neil Diamond, Celine Dion, Diana Krall, Michael Buble, Mary J. Blige, Christmas album, Josh Groban. Whitney Houston, the Bodyguard stuff, you know, it doesn't get much bigger than the Bodyguard nope. soundtrack stuff, you know. Anne Murray, Barbara Streisand, Bee Gees, Michael Jackson, the Scorpions in 1997. So he dips oh. into the rock thing. Lionel Richie in 1998. So, as you mentioned, he's still doing stuff today. And so I haven't even really dipped much beyond like the late 90s. Well, do you know, does he produce Catherine McPhee's stuff that he plays on? I've got to believe he does. I don't know that offhand. Yeah. All right, well, I'll look it up as you're chit-chatting. Well, so, and then we look at the Quincy side of the coin. You know, Quincy started off in the 60s producing. If you remember who Leslie Gore is, It's My Party, I Can Cry If I Want To. Oh, yeah. That was Quincy Jones in 1963. But, you know, getting more into the contemporary era of the yacht stuff, and we got, you know, Brothers Johnson, we got Rufus with Shaka Khan, Donna Summer. Mm-hmm. Michael Jackson alone, you know, off the wall, thriller, bad. Yes. You got the Dude album. Got the Color Purple soundtrack. You got the E.T. soundtrack. You got Patty Austin and James Ingram he launched. We got, he he produced um, Sinatra's last album, L.A. is My Lady. He did We Are the World. I mean. <laughs> did he? Really? He's like the main producer of We Are the World, too? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, when you look at these two lists, and this is just, you know, me kind of henpicking what I consider highlights. It's just, it's it's mm. incredible. It is. It's incredible. Um, so that's why I didn't want to just tie it into the Yacht Rock era. But um, we've always talked about how Quincy straddles uh, genres better than anybody else. Yes. Yep. Well, so was the hot take that he was the more, I mean, they're both hugely prolific, but was it the hot take the more important or significant producer? Significant, yeah. So, I mean, you'd have to think about what what maybe influences came off of that, you know. Mm-hmm. To a certain degree, you David Foster created a sound that many people then sort of copied to a certain degree. Um, you might make the case that someone like Mutt Lang, who produced like um, Brian Adams, um, uh, uh, was the... Uh, Robin Hood soundtrack song, you, the thing that you do, you do for love or whatever yeah, that everything song I was. do, I do for, yeah. Uh, yeah, and and that is very much like a David Foster production taken to that next Def Leppard <laughs> level, mm-hmm. you right. know, in sound. That sound with the stacked pianos and the, the DX7 on top of the grand piano, and everybody was doing that, and that's because David Foster established it as, this is what it's supposed to sound like today. Yeah. Um... Again, does that become a knock against him, that he becomes, for, at least for a period of time, uh, sort of a one-trick pony? I don't know. Uh, yeah. You know, Quincy produced undeniably the most important or most significant album of that era in Thriller. Yes. So I'm hedging. So I'm going to say, I'm going to say Quincy is probably the more uh, iconic or... 
influ- important. I don't know what the word is. I feel like I know. though David Foster has an edge on just showing this huge range of. I mean, yeah. it, year to year, his production sounded similar. But if you go from year one to year thirty or fifty or whatever it's been, there's a lot of different sounds in there. And not that Quincy Jones didn't do a lot of different sounds, right. but yeah, because that's I, I what I know. point out. The it's my party. I even cry. You know, right. that's the same guy that produced the dude. Yeah. Well. I'd rather not answer then. Yeah. What are you going to say? I'm going to lean Quincy Jones on that one. Yeah. I, I think I came into it um, almost thinking I was going to make the case for Foster, but I, I, I got to lean Quincy. I was the opposite. I thought for sure it was Quincy was a no-brainer, but I'm leaning Foster, interestingly enough. All right. Let's see what uh, kind of provocative uh, hot take you got. Okay, well, I'm, I'm going to borrow directly from Beato, where he asked, who's more famous, Eric Clapton or Jimi <laughs> Hendrix? And here's my hot take. Player is more famous than Ambrosia. Mm-mm-mm. It's interesting. <laughs> I have a uh, question on my list about player versus Ambrosia for you. But, did you uh, really? I did. Uh, it was more about the lead singer, but I think that the, the, the conversation's still going to go into the same place. So they, they both have... At least in Yacht Rock circles, very recognizable frontmen, right? David Pack versus Peter Beckett. Yeah. And today, nowadays, I do I, I know David Pack is not part of Ambrosia. Peter Beckett is touring, but I don't think as player. No, he's not. Um, if you would have asked me two years ago who has a larger, strictly Yacht Rock catalog, I would say, well, it's probably about three songs to two in favor of Ambrosia. But now I feel like it's more like twelve songs to five in front of in, in favor of Player. Mm. Um, I discovered way more yacht from Player than I have from Ambrosia. Um, I think for the um, the more general audience, that they're probably going to say Ambrosia first. I think that their hits come to mind possibly more quickly than Player's hits do, at least beyond Baby Come Back. Right. I think there's a certain slice of people that probably know Baby Come Back and then consider Player a one-hit wonder, even though they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Ambrosia, uh, I, I don't know why they seem to be more memorable. I don't know if the name Ambrosia is easier to remember than Player. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Sounds feels, smoother. Yeah, it does. It feels to me like Ambrosia is going to be the more top of mind instantly for people. Hmm. Let me ask you this. So, you remember, when we did our episode on top 10 guitar solos of Yacht Rock, I included mostly because it was a surprise that David Pack was a really good guitar player. So I pulled yeah. one of his solos. But listen to the outro solo to Players, It's For You. It's for you. Coming to find out or discover that Beckett is a very underrated guitar player, lead guitar player. I'm assuming he's doing the leads. I think so. Yeah. Would make it great to see live, you know? Got the lead singer doing the leads as well. I mean, that's hard work. That is heavy lifting, man. Yes, it is. Um, Hmm. They both have, they feature sax in and out of their songs. I I don't think 
either one of them reached into the stable of session cats. I think they had guys on hand that could play sax. Like I think the keyboard player did a lot of the player saxophone stuff. I don't know. You can correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know that. You know more about them than I do. Mm-hmm. I will ask you this question, though, because my question regarding those two bands involves the lead singers, and so maybe we add that to the mix. So my question was going to be the better singer, David Pack or Peter Beckett. God, I don't think that... that's a gimme either. They're so similar, too, I'm finding. They are. Their styles and their tone. Um, I would have reflexively, again, a year and a half ago, said, oh, you're not going to beat Pack. I mean, he's so smooth and has such range. Yeah, but... same. Yeah. But so does yeah. Beckett. So, player I think is I, uh, more famous than Ambrosia more, is the question, though. I know, more famous. I still think I'm going to lean Ambrosia on more famous, I yeah. think. Even in Yacht yeah. Rock circles, specifically. Uh, I think so. I think you're probably right. So, that was a hot take. Yes. All right, can I shoot one back at you, and then we'll do a stink draft type of style? Yep. All right. You'll like this one. You probably have something similar, which is why I'm trying to steal the round here. <laughs> Steve Lukather is a better guitar player than David Sanborn is a sax player. Well, I had, the, I, I had the question, um, <laughs> Lukather or Ernie Watts. So, <laughs> Oh, my gosh. That's funny. Um, well, should we do an elimination round and go Sanborn versus Ernie Watts if we're playing game? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if we could do that. I don't well, know. Well, wh- which one would you? Let's choose. Who's the better soloist? Was the question? Here's, here's the hot take: Steve Lukather is a better guitar player than David Sanborn is a sax player. Oh yeah, that is a hot take. Yeah, <laughs> take. Wow. Um, I've talked forever about Lukather's various styles and formats, yeah. not just as a lead player, but a rhythm guy, as you well know. But we're talking solo. Oh, no, no, you said I didn't guitar say anything player. about solo. No. I said Steve Lukather is a better guitar player than David Sanborn is a sax player. Well, Lukather can certainly do more on guitar than Sanborn does on sax, and partly the instrument lends to that. I mean, you don't True. really have a rhythm sax option. Um, I... Who was able to carve out a career as being a featured soloist, featured soloist, solo act, strictly on his playing? Correct. And that, that was, was going to be my, my defense of Sanborn. Um, I think that looking at it from that perspective, that Sanborn, in a world where there are a lot of sax players, carved out his own niche, his own place, his own... You know, in his style, he, or in his genre, I think he's an undisputed number one as a, you know, a lead soloist. Um, had Lukather done that, that becomes the hypothetical. Had Lukather decided he was going to go and be Eric Johnson or Joe Satriani or something like that, um, I think that there are... I, I fear that he would get lost in the shuffle, not necessarily because he's not as good, but there's just so many great lead guitar players out there. That Well, he's already gotten lost in the shuffle. You know, we talked about that in the guitar solo episode. Is that yeah. Just when you broadly speak to just rockers in general who aren't really nuts about yacht rock like we are, they'll, they'll mention people like Paige and Hendrix and Eddie Van Halen and, you know, it, very rarely do they say, oh, and Steve Lukather is in that. He should yeah. be in that breath, though. Yeah, could he have at any point gone out and just done a bill of, say, 
Steve Lukather and band and and filled big uh, you know big auditoriums. Um, I mean, he would have had a niche audience for sure. He his, you know yeah. his hardcore audience, but could he have done? the success with the, the record sales and all that stuff that Sanborn did. Partly it's not because of his playing and partly because the lead guitar thing is somewhat more oversaturated. As many sax players as there are, the lead guitar player is a really oversaturated market. Yes, it is. Yeah, but I've really come to appreciate his specific style and out to the point where I could recognize it, even as you say, there's, it's so saturated. When I hear a guitar lead, I'm like, like I came with Picaro, I could almost predict with certainty that that's... Lucas. Yeah. Now, recently I predicted it and I looked it up and it was Michael Landau. So I've been wrong, right. but yeah. Um, if I'm going to do a session, almost no matter what style I'm doing, and I could hire any guitar player I want, it would be Lukather, and I wouldn't have to worry about what the style was. Yeah, it's true. Yep. So th- for that reason, he gets the nod. It's not a. I think he take. gets the nod. I think yep. he does. Yeah. Because yep. if Sanborn was ill, say, I'd have Ernie Watts, and I wouldn't care. That I'm missing David Sanborn. <laughs> yeah, but if uh, Lukather was ill, I'd, I'd have Jay Graydon, and I would feel fine about that That's as well. That's true. So. All right. Well, I'd, let me just point out, I spared you this conundrum. The hot okay. take originally was, Steve Lukather is a better guitar player than Jeff Beccaro is a drummer. Woo! Oh, my gosh. Well, we could have gone places there. Uh, I, I my, my quick answer is false, but we yep. can move on. Let's move on. We'll come back to okay. it. Okay. Uh, hmm, which one do I got? I, I, I think... Um, this one is a little bit tricky, but uh, follow me on this because we talk a lot about the, the one of the main pieces of DNA that makes up Yacht Rock is the session musician. Yes. And we often credit that back to the model that was established by Steely Dan. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, this hot take says that the grandfather of the session music movement is actually Boz Skaggs over Steely Dan. Ooh. I'm not so sure that's as hot as you think it is, but let me think through it. You want me to make a little bit of the case? Can you give me some of the, the years with, like, silk degrees? Well, like, that's me, where my case is. Okay, give me some of the context. Through that. Right. Okay. So, if we, we point to Asia as being the one that is the, quote, model for that, right? Well, that was 1977. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. So before that, Boz did in 1976, he did Silk Degrees, which of course has Lowdown, Lido Shuffle, Georgia, you know, just a, a stellar album. Do you have the personnel now, on that or are you going to come back to that? I don't have that in front of me. Okay. Um, because the personnel from one, from the Steely Dan to the um, Boz Skaggs is all pretty much the same guys. But. You know? To cut to the chase, there was a ton of personnel on that Silk Degrees record. Like right. Like Luther I'm, and Picaro and stuff like that. All of them, yes. Yeah. Okay. So, Asia, 1977. Silk Degrees, 1976. So, what did Steely Dan do in 1976? Well, that would have been the Royal Scam album. We look at that personnel, and again, it's loaded with personnel, and it was very much a Fagan Becker and then a bunch of session guys. Okay. So now we're kind of at a tie. They're both doing that in 1976. So I went back one more year to look at um, Steely Dan's 1975 album, which was Katie Lied. Now, Katie Lied, it's a little less clear that it's built on session guys because um, it uses mostly the same basic core group. Like Jeff Percaro plays drums on every song except for one. Hal Blaine plays on uh, Any World That I'm Welcome To. Um, you've got... Um, 
Denny Diaz, a carryover from the original five-piece band, is there. Michael McDonald is credited as a, like a band member. He sings on all of the songs. Hmm. You got you know a um, picture on the back of, of that's definitely displaying a sort of band sort of thing. You see Jeff, you see uh, uh, Fagan, you see Becker, you see Denny Diaz, you see Michael McDonald. So they're showing this as a band. Okay. They hadn't quite really pushed forward the idea that we're no longer a band. We're just two guys and Session Cat. So do we count Katie Lied as preceding Silk Degrees? To me, it's a little unclear. And it, I feel like Silk Degrees and the Royal Scam kind of happened at the same time. Yeah. And we know that Toto got together more out of playing together for Boz. And they were... Um, that's how they kind of got together, the Toto guys. Yes. So Boz guys can be somewhat credited for putting together what eventually became Toto. Not certainly not his intent at the time, right. but no. So hmm. But put that group of cats together before Steely Dan, before Katie lied. I mean, or not after, before though. Katie lied. It was it was after Katie lied, but I don't I don't know that you can look at Katie lied as a right, right, right. You know, yeah. Huh. I think I got a credit. This isn't how you put the hot take, but maybe this is my answer. Boskags is the visionary behind the Session Cats movement that became Yacht Rock. Is that good enough? I, I think that answers the question, and I am going to be, uh, at least today, as I sit right here, I think I'm in agreement with that. Yeah. And not always the visionary, you know, gets to be, get all the credit. You know, sometimes it's right. somebody who comes along and says, oh, I, I, that's a great idea. So, but I think people looked to what he was doing. I think so, I think so he too. led people. In that, and who knows, maybe that's part of what drew Steely Dan to L.A., seeing what Boz was doing. I don't, I don't know, but... Boz was, I think, someone that people looked up to, and they kind of followed what he was doing. It didn't Steve Lukather say either "I'm the musician I am because of Boz" or yes. "Toto is the band that we are because it maybe I think said it's both. both." Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's not so hot after all. Um, yep. Uh, I think we agree there. Cool. All right. Well, do you want to hit me with your third and final hot take? I think this is a fairly quick one. Okay. And. Um, As is my third one. Yes. Okay. The more important album in the Yacht Rock Circle Mm -hmm. is not Asia, but Minute by Minute. Ooh. Minute by Minute. Because it has the number one song. Correct. What a fool believes. Asia, I'm sorry, Steely Dan and Asia... They get up into the like low nineties. I don't know. Do they crack ninety six? Again, re- repeat I don't the think hot, so. hot take. Is that okay? The Yachtier album, the more important album to the yacht rock era, is not Asia, but minute by minute. Hmm. Well, I'll give you my gut. That's a hot take because of the fact that all of Minute by Minute is not super yachty. Not every single song, as I recall. But all of Asia, every single track is important, I feel like, on that record. The hits, the buried treasures, all of it. Um, I can't say the same thing about Minute by Minute. I, I, I like it all, but do you have anything that's... 
I mean, do you well, have a take on I think this? I, I, yeah, I think I got to stick with Asia for a couple of reasons. That, that was one of them, is that it's top to bottom every minute of that um, album. Does it uh, minute by minute, uh, sags a little bit on side two. But also Asia being 1977 and minute by minute being 1980, we're technically four years into Yacht Rock when uh, minute by minute comes along. So it, to me, it's more a symptom of Yacht Rock than a formulation of, you know, a formulative record. It could be a variant as they're using nowadays. Oh, because <laughs> the I symptom. know all about that. Yeah. And uh, because it took what was happening, it, but it didn't repeat what anything sounded before. I mean, it was a whole new brand new sound. Yep. So it, it's not like they said, oh, here's what Steely Dan's doing. Here's our take on it. That is true. Um, so, but I, I still feel like Asia is more important because, I mean, let's go back to what's the better recording just if you look from an engineer standpoint. I think it's Asia. It's so pristine and beautiful and perfect. Hmm. I'm not saying that hmm. minute by minute it's not those things, but. Hmm. I'm not. A, uh, do, you, do, do you recall our Ted Templeman episode? Uh, yeah, I do. Okay. I know. I'm kidding. Um, wait, who, yes. That was on this podcast? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Okay. How many do you do? Uh, I do a Yacht Rock one, and then I do a Yacht Rock one that you're not invited oh, good. to. Yeah. Good. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I guess we're on the same mind. It's Asia. So it's um, I've got two left. One was a backup in case you repeated or t- took any of my ideas, which this okay. one sort of is. But I wanted to use it anyway. I'm not going to use my backup. Steely Dan is yachtier than Toto. Is the hot day. And Toto is being considered both as a band and as the individuals. Oh. That creates a crossover. Um, no, I can't go there with that. I, I could if it was just the band's um, album output. I could, for sure. You would say but Steely I, Dan is yachtier? It, Steely Dan is yachtier than Toto. unless you Yes, unless you include their, uh, you know, their session work. They're n- not even close. So even though there's crossover with the personnel, though, right, right, the Steely Dan sound with the you know taking into account how they write songs and all how the melodies are and how much jazz influence, do you feel like that sound is yachtier than say the yachty Toto stuff you might get on a Boss Gags album or on a Bill of Bounty album? You know that has this it's pure yacht. No, I don't. Uh, I I would say the, like the Labounty stuff and you know going back to like. Boss Gags, JoJo, for example. To me, those are all yachtier sounding than Steely Dan. Steely Dan feels like the building blocks for yachtiness. Mm-hmm. But I, the one thing that they don't have that really makes something feel yachty to me is the addition of some R&B influence. Yeah. You don't get very much of that in Steely Dan. It's more jazz influenced with rock. You add a little bit of R&B to it, and now you get yachtier, and that's where I think like Boss Gags and Bill the Bounty and those are. Yep, I agree with that. It's almost like too jazzy in parts, not for my tastes, but to be strictly yachty. And I know the 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 experts would say that that doesn't necessarily hold true, but just in my mind. So okay, well there we go. I got one more. I'm going to leave as a hip cliffhanger. We don't even All have right. to address it. Then we'll get into the lightning round. But I had Bill LeBounty album. The album mm-hmm. is more yacht iconic than Mark Jordan's Blue Desert. All right, and I have a cliffhanger. <laughs> okay. The Doobie Brothers pre-Michael McDonald era is still better than the Michael McDonald era. Ooh. All right, we're going to have okay. to put a pin lightning in Okay, round. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, you are a devilish sort. All right. Well, let's go into the uh, lightning round, and uh, 
you can go first if you'd like. All right. How do you like that? I didn't ask for the sound effect, and it played by itself. All right. Nice. All right. Here we go. Float your boat. Uh, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about the concert you just saw oh, and yeah. a couple of the players that you saw, because for Float Your Boat, I'm going to ask you about this James Taylor tune that I found that feels much more yachty than a lot of his other catalog, and that one is Her Town 2. Somebody brought that up in the group and proposed that it was Yachty. That's uh, with J.D. Souther. Yes. And um, it's got some electric piano. It's smooth. I don't know how much bounce it has. But real quick, uh, that show was, I'm sitting there watching this drummer. He's an old timer. I'm sitting a million miles away. I'm like, this guy's killing it. It's got to be one of the cats. I thought it was a Murata. And then he announces, does kind of a drum solo and then, James Taylor announces, ladies and gentlemen, you all know him, Steve Gadd. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, man. And then the guitar player later, I can't, I'm way far away. I see this bald, skinny guy just wailing. This, I'm like, that, is that guy a young cat? Or is that an old cat that can still pull that off? Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Landau on guitar. Oh, jeez. So I'm seeing some legends. So for all of those who've been yelling yeah. at me and saying James Taylor's not Yachty, uh, personnel galore, that song is on my boat. Same. Yep. Cool. All right. Um, I, where do you come down on Dr. Hook generally in the song? I'm just going to throw out there cause I'm torn on this. I used to think for sure it's yacht. I'm not so sure anymore. Better love next time. All of their stuff is a little bit novel, and maybe it belongs in our little novelty yacht uh, list that we did. Because um, everything they do is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, and I like that. I enjoy that about them. Um, to me, I know uh, somebody that uh, listens to this show is not going to like <laughs> what I have to Uh-oh. say. Plug your ears, Kyle. Yeah. I, I, I look at it right on the edge, um, Me too. sort of the, in the same area where they, they put like some of the Atlanta rhythm section stuff and mm-hmm. uh, maybe even Climax Blues Band. It, it flirts staying close because of the novelty aspect. Somehow that seems to fit with me. Um, but man, I, I would say you ask me one day I'm a yes, the next day I'm a no. I think they're right there on the edge. So I'm going to lean soft no. Okay, interesting. I'm right exactly where you are. I I would lean no, but it's close enough that I would keep it in my playlist and say, eh, close enough. Yep, so. that's me. All right, I, I have just a killer buried treasure that uh, some you might say, this is not buried at all. It's a Lionel Richie tune. Okay. I'm not even sure it's Yacht for sure, but I've been hearing this lately, and I'm like, oh, my God, this is such a good song. Love Will Conquer All. Here we are. Yeah. Isn't that a beauty? Yeah. Yes, yes. 
it is so long. I didn't realize how long it was, but I was listening to it. I've cut the lawn just a little while ago. I'm like, dang, that's yeah. a good tune. There's a little plucky uh, Paul Mutes in there, um, but doesn't have a ton of yacht elements. But do you remember that song from back in the day? Yes, I do. I didn't it, realize it was him because he sounds a little bit different on that. And they, they played that on the, the cool funk stations that weren't playing Lionel Richie because he was too like adult contemporary. Yeah. But yeah, uh, Electrifying Mojo, he would play that one. Yeah, it's a good one. So, you know, the Sirius station, if you want to play wrong songs, that's a perfect wrong song yes. to play because it's so darn good. All right. Yeah. What do you have for Barry Well, this Trish? one was sent to us from uh, via Facebook Messenger, listener Darren. He pointed out uh, he was a big uh, fan of our, um, going back to the Christopher Cross album uh, dive that we did. And he had a lot of notes that he sent to us, a lot of the stuff actually that you covered. So, um I actually found one thing in his note that he pointed out that there was a Japanese issue of that Christopher Cross debut album hmm. that had a bonus track on it. And Whoa. so I'm going to have to uh, play this one in from YouTube, but it's too bad that we missed out on this one. This is a song called Marianne. So that was from that same session with the first Christopher Cross record? Yep. Well, we've got another thing to ask Tommy Taylor about. Yep, we do. Mm, cool. Good okay. find. Really good find. All right, what do you've got for uh, Off the Map? I'm going <laughs> to loop us back into uh, this one ties in with our conversation, even though it wasn't intended that way. It works out beautifully. Off the Map. This is 1983, so it's certainly in the era. Um this was a song from Olivia Newton-John. The reason it's off the map is because it's not a very yachty track. But Olivia Newton-John from the Two of a Kind soundtrack. Well, that was the movie she was in with Travolta. So there's something about the Travolta connection. <laughs> I was going to say, I thought that was right? Grease. I know. Uh, this was produced by David Foster. Oh. That- and it was written by Stephen Kipner and one Peter Beckett. Oh, my And this gosh. is called Twist of Fate. That tied in David Foster. It tied in Beckett. Yeah. It tied in Travolta, even though we didn't have to. We just wanted right. to. Yeah. Right. We just wanted That's to. Cool. Uh, very good. Well, I am going to tie in from my off the map. Uh, last week's episode. I think it was last week when you found a cover by Go West. Oh yeah. <laughs> what did they cover again? That was the Bobby Caldwell tune. What you want to do for love? Yeah. Well, I told you to put a pin in something because I found a cover, modern cover from 2012. From a band that you know I love, Lake Street Dive. Yes. Off their Fun Machine EP. Sorry, Fun Machine EP. Mm-hmm. You might not think this is exactly Yachty, but they do a pretty cool version of Rich Girl. You're a rich girl, and you're going too far, because you know it don't matter anyway. You can rely on the old man's money. You can rely on the old man, honey. It's a bitch girl, and you're going too far, because you know it don't matter anyway. Send money, but it won't get you too far, get you too far. 
that was the song that hooked me on them. When I first heard them, and it was like, what, bass, drums, vocal, and trumpet. And yeah. Like, how do you pull this off with just that? And it was amazing. It's a cool version, too, you know? Yeah. So, well, very good. All right. Well, anything else to add? I, I've got a one final. I, I do have a hot take, but I've been saving for you. Well, I'm going to look at my list. Do I have any other hot takes I want to? No, I'm well, going to throw gonna, this one. I'm going to leave you. it to you. Yeah, yeah, I'll leave it to you. Go ahead. Okay. So, ahoy is a yachtier word than poloi. Yeah. 